For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Can you hear me in the room and on Zoom? Okay. Uh, thank you, Jan. So I'm really happy and honored to introduce our guest speaker this morning. Uh, ben Connolly uh, actually has been here before at Ancient Dragon, but way back in the last decade when we were at Ir- uh, uh, on Irving Park in our little storefront temple. So uh, thank you, Ben, for coming again. Um, ben Connolly is a priest and uh, a t- transmitted teacher at Minnesota Zen Meditation Center, the center that Katagiri Roshi uh, established. And um, he's, he has a wide range of backgrounds. Uh, he's, uh, among his books, there's Inside the Grass Hut, about the Song of the Grass Hut that we will be chanting later, and also Vasubandhu's Yoga Chara. And then his new book is Vasubandhu's Three Natures. So I think that'll be part of what he talks about today. And uh, Vasubandhu is very important to us uh, in the traditional uh, Zen lineage amongst the Indian ancestors. Vasubandhu is seven generations after Nagarjuna and seven generations before Bodhidharma. So he's a major figure uh, in Mahayana Buddhism and in Zen. Um, amongst other things that um, that uh, Ben does, he's worked on uh, racial justice and climate justice programs. He also uh, teaches mindfulness uh, to re- recovery groups and also to police and training. So uh, has a wide range of backgrounds. Ben, thanks for coming today and uh, take it away. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Tigan. You know, I'm really grateful to be here. I have so much appreciation for ancient dragons and gate. I've been able to visit a few times and connect with folks there and, and feel uh, a kinship and, and just know, you know, coming together to uphold the Dharma really matters in my opinion, you know, it's a beautiful thing to do for the community. And we don't understand a lot of times how the impacts happen. So thank you for that. And, you know, I just have so, so much appreciation in particular for you, Tigan, because, you know, my first book uh, inside the grass hut was a commentary on your, you know, your translation of uh, Shurto's song of the grass reformatage or however you want to exactly name it. And, you know, I just, I remember that text sort of through your translation penetrating my being. And I had really no inclination to write prose of any kind. And then I was just like, this is so great. I want to write about it. And then uh, and, uh, <laughs> now I keep writing books. So, and you were so supportive, you know, when I, when I first brought the idea of that project. And so deep appreciation. Thank you so much. Um so, uh, yeah, I want to talk about uh, Vasubandhu's three natures. <clears throat> um, 
And uh, my guess is a lot of people, they don't know what Vasubandhu is. They don't know what Three Natures is. Some people here may know more about it than me. That seems to be the norm in Dharma circles. There are people with lots and lots of experience and, and folks with less or different interests. So I'm going to say some basic things about Vasubandhu and Yogacara and the Three Natures, and then I will kind of unpack these particular teachings and hopefully demonstrate why they're particularly valuable uh, for Buddhists at our time. So uh, first, Vasubandhu is like a middle of the first uh, millennium common era Indian monk. And uh, people, we don't really know that much historically about him or figures uh, during that time period, just because of the records that we have. But he created a, a very large body of Buddhist literature, which has been really, really influential. So um Vasubandhu is, as Taigan said, you know, during our, when we chant the ancestors, all Zen um, lineages hold Vasubandhu as one of their um, really important ancestors. Also, he's known as one of the six ornaments of Tibetan Buddhism and one of the great ancestors of the Jodo Shinshu Pure Land tradition. And, uh, you know, this is largely because of his uh, written works. So early in his life, he wrote the Abhidharma Kosha, um, which is, was like a, kind of a summation of early Buddhist, we'll say psychology to be simple, technically be more accurate to say phenomenology, but I don't want to overwhelm us with complicated terms. Anyway, so he wrote the Abhidharma Kosha and basically all over um, Northern India in the area, people were just like, this person has created the most compact, coherent, accurate summation of these teachings that we have. And this is just great. He's on it. Um, And then, uh, a little while later, he wrote the Abhidharma Kosha Bhashya, which means a commentary on the Abhidharma Kosha, which means a commentary on his own book. Uh, don't try this at home. And uh, the commentary is predominantly critique of his own um, work and the material in that earlier work. Um, and this is something that I really appreciate. We see throughout the writing life of Vasubandhu a willingness to continue to expand and grow his view, to challenge views he had. To challenge the views of other people, but not in a way that's um, unkind or dominating. And I'm sorry to say, actually, there's a fair amount of Buddhist literature where it seems pretty unkind when people are arguing with each other. So this is something I really like is this constant willingness to change, to grow, to inquire, and to do it in a way that that doesn't come across as harsh. So anyway, the Abhidharma Kosha Bhashya has been the principal study text for understanding early Buddhism in most Tibetan and East Asian schools for since that time, for like 1500 years. Um, I just learned that the one of the first texts Dogen Zenji ever studied was the Abhidharma Kosha Bhashya, um, <laughs> which I was like, well, because I've, I've long thought it is Vasubandhu is a very similar thinker to Dogen in many ways, Dif- very different style of writing, uh, but their philosophy seems extremely coherent. Anyway, um, so Vasubandhu became associated with what's known as Yogacara Buddhism, which just means yoga practice, which basically just means spiritual practice. Um, So uh, Yogacara Buddhism is really about integrating early Buddhist teachings with Mahayana teachings. And if you're familiar with these terms, you might know why it would make sense to try and integrate them. If you're not, you might, this part of this talk may just be kind of like whatever, but they're quite different in many ways. 
Um, they have a relationship, but there was actually a lot of polemics and still are arguments. And people are like, no, this is right. And you guys are just like silly with your fake texts that aren't real, or these teachings are not helpful. And so you know, there's a lot of that going on. And Yogacara was really about saying, let's see how these things have coherence. Um, we're not, they didn't claim they were one, um, which is a other Buddhist tradition to say, oh, all this is actually one. Uh, Yogacara doesn't really do that. It tries to find a way to integrate the systems so they can be understood coherently and so that their various practices can be upheld. And to put it in really simple terms, uh, the way I like to think of it is Yogacara really enables us to access all the tools of early Buddhist psychology and mindfulness in a way that is coherent with um, uh, Mahayana Buddhism's emphasis on non-duality and uh, the fact that nirvana and samsara are one that's is that a fact <laughs> well some of us will claim so so uh so that's just kind of a, a little background and um what i'll be talking about today is the material in this book called vasubandhu's three natures that i i recently had published which is a translation of vasubandhu's treatise on three natures and then a line-by-line uh, line commentary. So it's 38 verses on this root teaching of Yogacara called the Three Natures Teachings. And then each chapter is a commentary on one verse of the text. So these uh, Yogacara teachings, I think, are really salient for our time. Um, one of the reasons I came to this conclusion is because someone much smarter than I do came to it. So Thich Nhat Hanh, a large uh, part of the structure on which he built his whole movement and his philosophy is Yogacara teachings. I had been thinking this and saying it and then thought, I wonder if anyone else agrees with me. I've talked to some of his students and they said, yes, I think that's accurate. And I had an amazing experience uh, recently where I was teaching a course on Yogacara at Union Theological Seminary in New York uh, a couple months ago, a short course, like a weekend and uh, I got there and I found out that Thich Nhat Hanh had gotten a master's degree at Union Theological Seminary in 1963. And his master's thesis was on Yogacara was in the library. And I thought, wow, I didn't have time to go in there and find it, which would be pretty exciting. But he has some really great books on Yogacara, including the uh, uh, Understanding Our Mind, which I'm looking at right now, Understanding Our Mind. Anyway, so he saw in Yogacara and in this integration of early Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism an excellent model for how to do what he called engaged Buddhism. In simple terms, the interest is how can we make a framework so that people in, can engage in transforming cultures and systems and communities where we can be well throughout the process? So I see all the time people who sort of oscillate between trying to engage in the world and, and change systems and deal with climate change or deal with their clients in therapy or deal with their anti-racism work or deal with the homelessness crisis. And then it's exhausting and painful. And then they have to just sort of run back to this other location, which is self-care. Yogacara is really about saying these kind of things can be integrated and our lives can be integrated. So our action of transforming uh, the world or, or acting in the world in a way that's beneficial can be completely good for us and completely good for everyone else. 
Um, but having said that, it also provides practices so we can emphasize different parts. So it doesn't deny that sometimes one or the other might be uh, more necessary, but it does create a framework for integrating these. So, uh, yeah, so that's, I think, what I would like to just say for introducing things. And by the way, I'm going to talk for a while, but I'm planning to leave a, a substantial amount of time for uh, questions and and. Uh, uh, reflections from the group here. So, so moving on, the three natures. So, um, there's three main teachings, arguably, in Yogacara. One is the teaching of mind only, which probably means almost the opposite of what you think, but I'm not even going to unpack that. Um, eight consciousnesses, which is really about um, investigating our experience and seeing what's here right now and sort of thinking about it in a way that's beneficial. And then the three natures, which is really the philosophical framework for the tradition. And so gen what I'm going to be talking about now is like a way of looking at the world. I'll say that it'll call that a philosophical framework that enables us to enact our liberative capacity moment to moment. That's really what the teaching is for. So it's not a set of practices. It's a way of looking at the world that helps us understand why and how to practice. And by mean practice, I mean do things. So practice means doing things. And the idea of practice in Buddhism is what you do is what you're creating in the world. So having said this, uh, the three natures, what are they? The imaginary, the dependent, and the complete realized nature. Uh, Parakalpata, uh, Paratantra, and Paranishvana Svabhaha. I'm not using any more Sanskrit terms for the rest of the class. <laughs> so imaginary, dependent, and complete realized natures. So the idea is that each thing and everything is of these three natures, or you could say has these three characteristics, which is another way they'll sometimes be described. So everything, anything you see, smell, hear, taste, any thought, any feeling, um, Anything within the field of experience is of three natures or has these three characteristics. It's imaginary. So the imaginary is whatever you think a thing is. So whatever you think something is, is imaginary. It's its imaginary nature. <laughs> the dependent nature is that it appears as it does to you, dependent on conditions which are not itself. And the complete realized nature is that it's not what you think it is. So, pretty simple. Um, if you don't, if you haven't already noticed, this is an enormously challenging set of teachings. It challenges every basic assumption of how most people think the world works. So, uh, this is my task is to try and demonstrate why this can be helpful. So, the imaginary nature of things is what you think they are. The dependent is that they appear to you dependent on conditions that are not themselves. And the complete realized nature is that they are not what you think they are. So I'm going to use a little reading from this book uh, in order to kind of give a sense of this. Every aspect of what we would conventionally call experience is of these three natures. All sights, sounds, smells, tastes, physical sensations, thoughts, emotions, 
and our sense of being a self. For example, the cobalt blue car that I can see outside my window is of an imaginary nature. Whatever I'm experiencing it to be right now, a memory, as I'm currently looking at letters on a screen, or now, as I turn my head to look at the car again, whatever I think it is, is a construction of habits of consciousness and imagination. I suspect it will take some time for you to consider this a reasonable or useful claim. And so, dear reader, that's why I'm writing this book. That car is also of a dependent nature. Countless conditions that are not the car create the appearance of a car. Reflected sunlight, ocular nerves, supply chain software, oil refineries, the desire for wealth, and so on. This car is also of complete, realized nature. It isn't what I think it is. Recognizing that things aren't what you think they are can radically disarm the patterns of your mind that cause you to suffer and cause suffering. For example, in order to see the car in my normal way, I am usually ignorant of or ignore a vast array of conditions on which the appearance of the car depends. Conditions that cause suffering in this time of climate crisis. These teachings are to help us move beyond this kind of ignorance. The so-called knowledge that white people are inherently superior to black people and the purported fact that race exists as a biological truth were confirmed by 19th century scientific experiments, which have since been disproven. This caused and causes incalculable harm. This so-called knowledge is imaginary. It arises from conditions and its complete realized nature is that it is not real. And yet, millions of people thought and still think it is true. Although many of us do not, the impacts of this view are pervasive. It affects where people live, the jobs we have, the wealth we inherit, our access to education, and so much more. They are alive in how I experience the world. This teaching is here so we may continually grow in our capacity to end and transform harmful patterns of which we are often unaware. By learning to see the three natures, we open the way for liberation. By learning to see the three natures of ideas that maintain harmful systems, we open the way for liberation. The three natures can be misapplied and easily misunderstood. Understanding the imaginary nature invites humility not grandiosity. It affirms agency. It does not deny experiences. Understanding the dependent nature affirms kinship with all things. It does not deny differences or boundaries. Understanding the complete realized nature brings faith, compassion, and joy. It does not deny suffering. The three natures provide medicine for our ongoing daily sufferings, no matter how small. So I'd just like to point out that in both examples I gave, I pointed out that something is imaginary and that the impact on human suffering that it has is palpable. So this is the biggest challenge of this kind of teaching. And if you're not already picking up on it, talking about uh, emptiness or the two truths is, is helping people to see that we are not denying the importance of something. And in fact, as I move into talking about the imaginary, what we'll see is Yogacara wants to call things imaginary and say they have an imaginary nature in order to emphasize why you have liberative power. 
So, uh, the idea that all things are of imaginary nature, all things, yeah, are of imaginary nature, is a way of actively including um, the idea of karma into a set of teachings that says all things have no separate lasting nature. So rather than saying things are empty, which Yogacara teachings also will do, that this we have this emphasis on their being imaginary. And the idea is that the in this moment, you know, there's all this stuff, you know, you can just look around, there's sights, sounds, sensations in the body, thoughts, emotions. All of this is created by a process of conditioning. Um, and we're here by saying it's imaginary. Yogacharans want to emphasize that it's uh, behavioral, perceptual, cognitive, and emotional conditioning. So those things, the way we perceive things is mental. Um, our emotions are mental. Uh, our thoughts are mental. Um, so in our experience of things are just experiences. So one way to think about this, when we say mind in Yogacara, we often basically mean experience, something as experienced. So when we spend so much time emphasizing awareness of the body, the idea is to not see the body as an object that like, oh, there's an absolute object out there that I'm trying to get to and measure, but actually go into the experience of it. What is the experience of the body? So here, the experience of the body, the experience of our emotions, our thoughts, and the way we perceive the world are all created by a vast array of con behavioral conditions. So um, I'll take this example. So like uh, I was traveling to, to talk about this stuff and driving around the country in the fall, and I'm preparing to go to Vietnam to um, spend some time with some uh, Vietnamese nuns who are my colleagues. And um, so I thought it would be, I don't speak any Vietnamese and I wanted to be respectful. So I was like, well, I'll try and learn some Vietnamese. Uh, by the way, good luck on that for me. <laughs> I'm not doing very well. But anyway, I have my little Vietnamese tape. And I was like in the car driving around listening to the Vietnamese tape on how to speak Vietnamese. And um, the the tape would say like, Doi Hang Hyo Din Viet which means I don't speak Vietnamese, which may be the pinnacle of my attainment in this field. Um, but each time I would learn a thing, it would say like doi, and I'd be like, oh, doi, that means I. So I'm learning that this, these sounds doi uh, mean I, and that I'm like, oh, I know what I is, right? That's obvious. I already have an idea of that. So each time I practice hearing the sound doi or seeing the sound doi, then I would Crewing meaning to it, which means me and getting a sense that there's a me that looks at stuff. So language acquisition depends on this idea that we have in Yogacara, you plant seeds. So each time there's a perceptual, cognitive, uh, behavioral, uh, or emotional act, it plants a seed that will create a similar kind of experience in the future at some unknown time. And not an identical experience, but a similar one. So I plant seeds of ascribing the meaning I or whatever that means to the sound doi. And then pretty soon when I hear that, I go, oh, I know what that is. Now, the amazing thing is we've all done this and millions and millions of other people have done it so much that I can be spattering out sounds like I am right now. And you are extracting meaning from it. That's super weird. It's incredibly weird. 
And it happens all the time. And that's just a tiny fraction of every moment of experience. But Yogacara says it's not just language, but the way we perceive the world that comes together from all these conditions of learning how to perceive the world. And in this moment, we're like, oh, I know what it is. It's this, and this is all exactly real. And it's saying, no, it's not. That's the pro- That's an imagination pre- produced by a process of conditioning. And, you know, this is really important uh, in terms of our emotional lives, because we just know, you know, if you, if every time you hear a, a certain person's voice, you go, you get really mad and you're like, that stupid moron, blah, blah, blah. You just, that keeps happening. And every time you hear that voice, you get to have that experience, right? But on the other hand, I remember when I had a particular political figure that I was not happy about. And I was just like, oh, I'm just going to practice listening to the sound of their voice, noticing the emotion arises, not adding any afflictive thinking to it and do that. And then just be like, well, what what could I do with this experience that would be beneficial? And then we'll just think about how that person um, comes from a vast array of conditions and, and is in the world with me. And my liberation is bound to theirs, whether I like it or not. And then pretty soon I'd hear their voice and I, I wouldn't have to suffer. I'd just be like, oh, I better go vote <laughs> and try and get that person out the door. Uh, so, uh, yeah. I want to say one more thing about the imaginary nature. So, oh, no, I have to say a couple things. Sorry. Um, so, Basically, by saying things are of an imaginary nature, Yogachar is reminding us that we have power because every perceptual, cognitive, emotional, and behavioral thing plants a seed, which means you're always planting seeds. There's never a moment when you're not planting seeds that create what will be experienced by sentient beings. We don't know when these seeds will emerge or where, but they will. So every single moment you're practicing, what are you practicing is the question. Are you practicing desire, aversion, selfishness? Are you practicing conscience, humility, kindness, care, tranquility? So the imagine, when, when we hear about these things, oftentimes it, there's a lot of similar teachings and it'll sound kind of like they're saying, oh, just it doesn't matter. That's not what we're saying here. Or the other one that's a kind of a near relationship that's very different is like, oh, if you imagine things, then you get them. They just imagine things and you'll get them. Well, basically, if you do that, what you're doing is planting seeds of desire and not being comfortable with what you have right now. So this is why we have teachings about just being radically here uh, and meeting it with some kindness and some compassion and some care. So the other little thing I want to mention here is just that by using saying things are of an imaginary nature, there's an affirmation of imagination that comes out of Yogacara. So, uh, and you see this really flowers. Uh, there's a lot of Yogacara embedded in like the Avatamsaka Sutra, which is like one of the most wildly imaginative pieces of literature you will ever encounter. And uh, it's just full of these glorious images constantly unfolding. And so I just want to read a very short thing about imagination uh, as being sort of celebrated and affirmed by the three natures teachings. 
So each verse in this book is a comment. Each chapter is a comment on one verse of the root text. And so I'm not going to read you the verse, but this refers to a verse. Anyway, this verse upholds one of the central tendencies of Yogacara thought. It affirms that something is happening and denies that it's what you believe it to be. In particular, Vasubandhu here reminds us that the illusion exists. What are illusions for, if not joyful engagement? Sometimes people claim that saying things are illusory means we will not or should not care about them. This does not reflect my experience. We naturally delight in and marvel at magic tricks. We walk into plays, movies, songs, and stories willing to be deeply moved or challenged. At the movies, people cry in the dark or cringe at a shock. We create illusions and they transform us. We know that Wonder Woman isn't real, yet she inspires. We offer our whole selves to the experience of the illusions, the stories that artists offer. We can pour our whole selves more deeply into life when we realize that it exists as an illusion rather than as something to be grasped. And this becomes, you know, the, the pivot, the whole idea of emptiness and things being imaginary is it's, it's a worldview where there's nothing to grasp. So then you're free. You, know, it's, you don't have to constantly be holding on or pushing away. So uh, moving into the dependent nature, um, you know, this is the idea that each thing as it appears to us is the product of many conditions uh, far beyond what we can know. As uh, sometimes in the Pali Canon, the Buddha will say, well, without discoverable beginning. So um, this is a theme that I think most people who are around Zen communities have a sense of, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh loves to just list the things on which something to de- depend, which is a great practice to just sit and go, oh, yeah, just this moment. I'm in complete dependence on the sun and the warmth of this radiator that I just placed my hand on. And on the kind attention of the people in this group, without whom I guarantee you I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. And uh, the love of my parents when I was tiny and the mistakes they made, which were just part of the whole thing. My own errors, all of that is here. So just, just calling that up helps us to kind of dissolve the tendency that there's like this small object that we can figure out exactly where it comes from and then we can fix how we want. So, a couple aspects of the the experience of the dependent nature is it's it's common for people to experience this more deeply the more they practice. So, we see I talk to so many people who come to our Zen Center. Um, we we have our Zen Center and Minnesota Zen Center is on lake on a lake called the Damakaska. And so, you know, come sit zazen and they walk out the door. And the lake is there, and the trees and the animals and I'll come in a couple of days later and say, I've just never even, I've walked around that lake a hundred times and never seen it that way. And I, I just stopped and looked at the muskrats and I felt so close to them. We feel, you know, so when we're talking about the dependent nature, it is philosophical, but it's also about a visceral experience of intimacy with life, with how things are. And this can feel really good. Uh, it's quite common for, you know, people feel alienated and we suffer. Our yoga chara really emphasizes the sense of 
Uh, being separate from the world is the fundamental driver of human suffering. Um, and so it's when we feel close and connected because we're realizing the actuality of our dependence, it can feel just great like at rest and at home and beautiful. Uh, but um, acknowledging this truth also has uh, another more challenging side, which is basically we can't, there's no aspect of human suffering or animal suffering or suffering in the universe in any time period from which we can be ultimately separate. And that's, that's, that's tough sledding. I mean, that's why the, the Buddha starts with the first noble truth. He's like, we're just going to look at suffering and be real about it. We're not pretending. Um, and so that can be hard. And as we let in the dependent nature, um, we, we realize this, you know, this happens a lot. Um, as we hear discourse about race, you know, as someone who was raised in the Northern Midwest and, you know, um, around quite a lot of progressive people, there was a tendency to be like, oh, racism is a bad thing that, you know, the South was doing all this racism and it was bad down there and and it's still bad down there. They had this like they're the slave states. And it's like, I've come to realize from talking to people of color in my community that there is a lot of racism here in Minnesota. And there was racism in that town I grew up in that I was just not seeing. And so this, you know, you can just see I want we wanted to just push it away somewhere else. Um, and then we get closer, it can be hard. It's like, oh, that's painful, but we're just getting closer to the truth. And, you know, uh, those of you who work on climate justice work as well, you know, it's like, we just, can we just put it out of our mind? And we, sometimes we need to, it's too overwhelming. I know, but, you know, one of the genius of Joanna Macy's, um, work on, uh, climate change is you just got to start by like dealing with the feelings that come up when you face it so that you can learn to be with those feelings and then you can take action because you won't really take effective action or engage the issue until you can deal with the feelings because you'll be suppressing and repressing. And so we see this throughout all, um, all kinds of systems of harm. And so, you know, one, the work of the Bodhisattva to, is to be building our tolerance for really seeing how deeply connected we are to the whole thing. And, uh, you know, it's okay. Sometimes it's like you just got to turn off the, the news or take some time to put that down and just give someone a hug. You know, it's like I don't have to like, you know, now I'm a person from an oppressive class giving people a hug in a world where I contribute to climate change. I don't have to do that. I can just give them a hug. But at the same time, sometimes I have to come back and be like, oh, yeah, that's right. A lot of things about who I am just accrue privileges to me that I haven't earned. And I want to change that. I don't want that to be true anymore. And I can do that work. So um, dependent nature. It's got a very beautiful side, got some challenging sides. But the claim here is we're just getting closer to the truth. Uh, the great thing is we're getting closer to the truth, but the, the truthy truth of the three natures is that everything is of complete realized nature. Everything is of complete realized nature. So it is of imaginary nature. It's also of dependent nature. And it's also of complete realized nature. It's complete. It's real. And when we say realized here, the implications of the term Paranishvanas uh, Vabaha is this is uh, what is actually real. And it's what Buddhas see. So this is present throughout Buddhist literature, really the idea is the reason a Buddha is so free from suffering and so 
excellent at meeting people where they are and finding something to help them be from free from suffering is because they're seeing the truth. They're seeing what's real. So, uh, and the, and, you know, here we're saying the complete realized nature is things are not what you think they are. It's not a world of a bunch of objects to be manipulated. And I think in part, I've never said, thought of this before, but it's like, Buddha's great. Like when he's teaching, he's not like, I'm going to get you to get free. And he's not like, I'm going to make you get free tomorrow. If you read sutras, you're like, I'm going to give you some teachings and you can work it out. You're not an object. And he's not the one with the power. So anyway, that was a tangent. Um, But a complete realized nature. So everything is already complete realized nature because it's not a graspable object. So, you know, we got great teachings um, from feminist theories, theorists about how objectifying female bodies causes harm. But really, Mahayana Buddhism, and in particular in this teaching, the complete realized nature, it's like all, the basic source of suffering is that we objectify things and we're viewing them as objects. As, and the, the reason is so that we can be in relationship to them in a way that we like, so we can get rid of them or get more of them. And it's saying, well, you can learn to not do that. But one way to learn to not do it is by realizing they aren't objects in the first place. It's not a world of objects. It's just relational process all the time. You just walk in and be like, well, it's like this right now. What can I offer that will plant seeds for something more beautiful be imagined at some point? And you can, we can just keep doing that. And uh, this can be, you know, just a lot more fun. I don't know if you've ever tried to work work out something with a group of people and you're like, why won't they do it the way I want to? What's wrong with them? And instead, you can just be like, wow, that's all these people with their views. They're all imagining things in the way they are. They are dependent on their conditions. And I've got my imagination that's probably wrong half the time, but I have some convictions and I'm going to be clear about what matters to me. And I'm going to keep collaborating with them. Because they're not objects. The future is not an object that can be controlled. And yet, I can offer something. The quality of my discourse, the quality of my heart, and awareness that we're intimately dependent on each other can be powerful. So I want to do just a, two more uh, short little readings, and then we'll move to uh, kind of opening up the floor here. So... Um, one of the ways that the complete realized nature is talked about uh, is um, oftentimes it will be talked about in terms of the complete realized nature of the phenomena we would conventionally consider the self. <laughs> I'm not just saying yourself because there's, I don't know if there is one. What? Anyway, so like things like body, your, your mind, your own heart, all that stuff and stuff that we think is other. So all these things are of complete realized nature, and sometimes we'll kind of emphasize one or the other. So at the end of Vasubandhu's uh, 30 verses on consciousness only, the last verse says, this is the inconceivable, wholesome, unstained, constant realm, the blissful body of liberation, the Dharma body of the great sage. And he's describing what is seen when one sees the complete realized nature. But remember, everything's already of complete realized nature already. So that's already what you're seeing, my friends. This, you can wave your hands for your own this, is the inconceivable, wholesome, unstained, constant realm. And this is the blissful body of liberation, the Dharma body of the great sage. Liberation isn't going to happen somewhere else. 
Hakuin in the Song of Zazen essentially uh, quotes this in his last line where he says, this very place is the lotus land, this very body, the Buddha. So these teachings are kind of challenging. It's a little hard to believe. Maybe, maybe you're like, oh yeah, sweet. I got Buddha body. Feeling good. I don't know. But this is a, a religious tradition that evokes faith in things that may not be evident to us to move us towards more freedom from suffering. So I just want to read you two short passages. The first one's going to relate to the complete realized nature of the phenomena we would conventionally consider the self. And the second one will relate to the inconceivable, wholesome, unstained, constant realm. This is from a chapter called Already Buddha. When I came to Buddhist practice, I was seeking something else. I sought an escape from the anguish I experienced. My therapist told me it was the anguish of trauma from the past reproducing itself. My psychiatrist told me my brain didn't process serotonin properly. My friends in addiction recovery called it defects of character, self-will run riot. My Buddhist studies called it afflictive karma. All these ways of looking at it have had their utility, and I am deeply grateful for all who have supported me in finding the wondrous, joyful existence of today. When we suffer, when we see the suffering of others, it is right to seek wellness, to seek something else. However, it is also true that there is not something else, that you and I are not and cannot be broken. Or if there is brokenness, there must be a wholeness that is elsewhere. This is a duality. And duality is just a habit of mind. And here, relating to the inconceivable, wholesome, unstained, constant realm, which is to say where you are. <laughs> Recently, I heard a talk by a Dakota elder named Bob Klanderud. He spoke of the total kinship of all life. He told us that the confluence of the Mississippi and Minnesota rivers near my home on U.S.-occupied Dakota land is called Badote. For the Dakota, Badote is the origin of the universe, the land of Genesis. In his words, it is Eden. He asked us, now that you know you live in Eden, how will you choose to live? So, pretty happy to let Bob Klanderud have the last word because he's a really amazing, amazing person. And, uh, yeah, I would like to take some time to, to open up and, you know, hear if people have uh, questions. That's great. If you have uh, reflections, I think we have some time for that. It's nice to just think about all the people in the group. If you're going to make reflections and, and say something that's true to you and upholding uh, the well-being and, and practice of, of everyone here. So, yeah, uh, I don't know if you have a way you normally do this. I think if you're online, if you can use the raise hand. Or, Tygen, do you have a plan? Well, I just uh, asked David Ray, who's uh, 
hosting the, the online, but also there in the room, if you could call on people either at uh, Lincoln, uh, Lincoln Square, Zendo, or online. And um, yeah, uh, thank you so much, Ben, for that wonderful, uh, helpful presentation. And comments, questions, reflections, responses, please feel free. I'll just say if you're uh, if you're in the room, you might just start speaking because I, I might not be able to see you. And uh, if you're if you're on Zoom, uh, maybe just use the raise hand function because I, I I'm not seeing everybody who's here. <clears throat> and as people are considering uh, saying something, I'll just say I welcome all range of questions from. I'm confused about the relationship between the three natures and the formulation of the two truths and the later Tibetan, blah, 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 blah. or, um, hey, I'm really grumpy at work. What should I do? So <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Well, I'll, I'll go. And I guess my question is in, in, in the, the, the middle. Um, so I had never heard of Vasu Bandhu until I saw you uh, appear on our calendar. And uh, I read your 30 verses book and I don't think I've ever um, laughed and cried reading a book of philosophy. Uh, it's a lovely, lovely book. Really amazing. Um, I keep saying this. I've, 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 I've been around Zen Buddhism for three years. I keep saying, wow, uh, here's, here's another incredibly surprising thing that I wouldn't have thought was in here. So, so Vasubandhu and this integration of two different, I don't know, styles of thinking and practicing really took me by surprise. I did mindfulness meditation for 11 years before coming here, and I'm really grateful for it. Um, yeah, I'm just feeling the, I don't know, the, 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 the power of that. Um, really grateful for it. Maybe, you, maybe you'd say more about, I mean, I know that you do mindfulness teaching, and you do it in various places. And I guess I do have a question about our, about our Zen tradition. Like, What's the relationship? I, yeah, yes, so Vasubandhu is an ancestor. Um, I, am I just missing the Vasubandhu influence in what? In what I, I think that might be. I, th I think maybe my eyes are still opening. But anyway, so I'd love to hear you know, what, uh, more about mindfulness practice and teaching, and then just about Vasubandhu in our living Zen tradition now. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, I think I'll say, I'll talk about Vasubandhu uh, first. You know, it's, it's pretty, it's not easy to see the traces. You know, you'll find uh, little moments, maybe small quotations. Um, but I, I think it is like the, the you can see the commonalities between the philosophy and Dogen and, and Vasubandhu really stand out to me. And kind of, they, but they have different approaches in different languages, which helps me because I can go, oh, Dogen kind of puts it this way in this poetic language. And we have a little bit of more of a philosophical formulation over here. They're by no means the same. But actually, this is what I don't normally talk about. Generally speaking, the way Yogacara had a huge influence on early Chan. Um, but <laughs> they actually sort of jettisoned all the early Buddhist and psychology stuff. That's not what they were interested in. Generally speaking, they didn't. The you know early Buddhist psychology, you, it's like you have lists of things that you're trying to make sure you are attentive to, and you methodically work through different kinds of awareness of those things. And those were just not popular approaches. And actually, people thought they were, you know, overwhelming and, and not helpful a lot in Chan. So a lot of the parts of Yogacara that are that didn't really come through Chan. What you really see a lot of in Chan is talk about mind only. Um, 
and an interest in, yeah. And I kind of don't want to unpack that at this moment, but you see a lot of language about mind only, original mind, straightforward mind. All of these are very Yogacara ideas. So having said that, that enables me to pivot to the the other question, which I think for me is a little bit more current and uh, important, which is one of the reasons I teach this is I really do think that um, the mindfulness teachings, even if you don't take up a lot of them, are very helpful in a Zen context because I know I can get in trouble and I don't want to offend people, but I do think the lack of focus on psychology and emotion that comes through the Chinese and Japanese Zen traditions uh, can cause some problems. And it really helps to have this emphasis on being deeply aware of emotional states as a process of mindfulness and incorporating that into um, into Zen practice, which isn't to say it hasn't been part of the tradition, but it's a matter of emphasis. So then the cool thing is I get to go nowadays because I've been doing this for a while. Um, insight meditation communities are now asking me to come and I can really talk to them about the, the ideas of universal liberation and um, not waiting for enlightenment that are so central to our tradition and really elevate those as values and show how they can be integrated into Vipassana practice more because Vasubandhu has explained how to do it in a really beautiful way. So I don't have to be like, I've got a new theory. This is my theory. I can just be like, look at the Dharma. There's some great tools for us. And the thing is, all of these things are also very much happening as your experience. You're like, I did Vipassana for a long time, then I'm doing this. And many people are doing this or moving between them more fluidly, which I think is is cool. And basically, by studying Yogacara, we can really look at uh, a very a canonical, um, powerful, and brilliant way how to do those integrations. And so I'm really interested in, in just bringing these communities together, not like so they all have to be one, or we, but so we can just be more connected and more in dialogue. Yeah. Right. I don't know if you can where the camera is, if you can see me, but I'll try and talk loud. I had the delight to meet you in Milwaukee a couple of years ago at uh, Milwaukee Zen Center when you were uh, talking about your mindfulness and intimacy book uh, and had a nice lunch with you and some others afterwards. Uh, it was very delightful. Um, one of the things I love about your books, and I now have them all, I think, um, is I came to Vasubandhu from some of the others that you cite in your, your bibliography, uh, Jonathan Gold, Karl Brunholtzl, etc. And I've, I've studied their three natures, commentaries and translations. Um, and there's a, there's a tendency of philosophers to stay in philosophic language. And the gift that you bring to all of us is it's like I'm reading a book it's not like I'm reading a book. It's like I'm having coffee with you because uh, your voice comes through very well uh, in your books in the same way that it comes in person. And I think that's an extremely valuable thing because a lot of these concepts are so helpful, but they tend to get stay. They tend to stay in the philosophic realm of, of the, the terminology. And your gift, I think, is to bring it down to earth into everyday Oh, there's a blue car. Oh, there's, you know, whatever the example might be to really emphasize to people the immediacy 
and intimacy and applicability right now of these difficult concepts. They're not difficult because we're living them all the time and we're not even aware of it. Um, so I guess the question to you, um, throw right back at you. You know, you've studied a lot, and I appreciate, by the way, your non-sectarian taking in sources from early suttas, from Tibetan language, from Zen, from, from all these different sources. I think it's so important for people to learn that these are just different cultural uh, languages talking about roughly the same kinds of things, and you bring that out. So for you personally, you've done a lot of studying and writing um, day-to-day, like after this is over today, you're going to go do errands or whatever you do. Now, how does Vasubandhu live for you in your daily practice or experience? Thank you. Well, I appreciate your reflections about the, the books. And I'll just say, I'm so deeply grateful for the academic philosophers. There is absolutely no way I could do what I'm doing without them. So I can't, I cannot understand these texts without that work. Um, and so I do, it, I, I appreciate you saying it, but yeah, my purpose is to like kind of bring that for a new audience to, who's using it in a different way. And, you know, the relationships I have with people working in those fields, I'm really grateful for. And I'm really glad I don't have to do it because I'm like, this, that looks really hard to me. Everyone has different things they think are hard. So anyway, having said that, me, uh, Oh, it's so many, you know, I just have uh, one of the things is I have such a lively sense of relationship throughout my life that it's like right now I'm just I'm with you and that matters and and I can't figure it out and we can't fix each other or, or change each other. But it's like I can just offer something here right now. I feel that palpably in myself. And when I don't, I can kind of remember, oh, that's right. This is the message that we're imagining this together. Um and that, and that we depend on each other inherently. And, uh, yeah, uh, I'd say the hardest thing for me, I, I grew up with like a very secular upbringing. So I didn't come to Zen looking for religion. I, I was like, I was for years, I was like, I, it's not a religion. It's just, it's just a practice. Um, and now I'm like, whatever. Yeah. It, I look pretty religious sitting here with my altar. So, uh, the, the language around things all being complete realized nature is a less a natural fit for me. Um, so I evoke it in my mind so I can see it and I do feel it, uh, sometimes that there, there's, there's not a me and other stuff. That's, that's just a weird way of looking at things. My mind happens to create most of the time. So, uh, anyway, would love to hear from some other folks. I see Paul's hand up. Uh, hello. Hi. Um, I'm I'm a, a practitioner that has started with uh, Kataguri Roshi when he first arrived in, in uh, San Francisco from Japan. So I have a long history there, and I I deeply appreciate you carrying on the uh, his his lineage or what part of his lineage you do carry on in, in Minneapolis. But I've been listening to a lot of of um, things on the internet. I'm not part of the academic world, but uh, there's a lot of people with PhDs, and especially in the neurosciences, that are talking about Buddhism. There's a lot of people in various different realms, um, the influencers of various kinds, talking about Buddhism. 
Uh, the, the Yogacara is probably the most, the closest they get to uh, Mahayana. Most of it's, uh, you know, whatever you want to call the lesser vehicle. Anyway, uh, it has a lot to do with attainment. They seem to be like it's sort of part of a, an elitist attainment movement. Uh, at least it can be seen that way anyway. Other, um, I just wonder what your your feelings about what you're you're closer to that scene. You're out there in that world. What your understanding of that um, of, of what the current the current state of Buddhist Buddhism in America? I guess is what I'm asking. Huh. Yeah. Sometimes I think I'm not great. I'm not. Uh, my mind doesn't go to trend tracking. Um, but I, you know, I know that there are people. You know, it's like. There's an appeal within Buddhism for people who kind of want to become like super powered. Um, I'm just saying, let's not do that. Let's just not do it. Um, it's in there. The literature says you can acquire amazing supernatural powers. So I'm not denying it's part of the tradition, but I just don't think that's the medicine we need. Um, what I can say is I focus on the relationships I'm in and I get to be in relationship to a lot of people who are really interested in uh, being well, taking care of themselves, dismantling their own internal processes that cause harm, and then being in relationship with other people for transforming the world. That, I mean, and by that, I mean, like, I sit down at committee meetings and we say, how are we going to talk about these anti-Semitic attacks? And how are we going to get out into the community and communicate that this is real and we want to acknowledge it? And we can do something, you know, sitting down with people and saying, let's get together and take some climate justice action. So I, I tend to focus on the relationships I can get into that are liberative. Uh, so that's just where my mind goes when you ask that question. Uh, but there's all kinds of stuff going on. What I can say about science is I've got a, some real fun science stuff in the book because Yogacara is definitely not science, but it's weird. Some of the commonalities between what it says and what current scientific understanding is is revealing so so i'd love to hear a, a couple other voices uh, i think we have just a couple more minutes yeah so long story with the um the first and the third natures it seems to me like it boils down to the map is not the territory uh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's definitely in there. So the, the, I mean, that gets to the whole thing of like what you think it is, isn't what it is. So well, I think that thoroughly captures that. Yeah. I mean, maps can be useful. They're not, they're imaginary. They're only, you know, part of what is, but, um, and some maps are good for some purposes and some for others. And, and, and if you have, you know, a map that distorts, things in harmful ways it's it helps to know that it's imaginary yeah you could also kind of say like the territory is not the territory Mm -hmm. but it's but it's where we can practice right that's that's what i i really think the particular flavor of this is to remind us that even though nothing is what we think it is there aren't objects things are empty of separate existence what we do always matters and the way we do it is what has impact. So that drawing our attention to what we do and how we do it in a way from like, how do I manipulate that object or get that thing to happen? Uh, and so people can argue whether that's a good way of being. But in my experience, 
I feel like I've been able to get some cool relationships going and do some awesome stuff and, and enjoy my life. So that's why I talk about it a lot. Let's see. Do we have time for one more? One more. Deborah's got her hand up and we have a little more time. Uh, okay. We could do a few more. Deborah. Okay. Here I am. I'm on a phone. Hey, I, Ben, I just wanted to thank you so much. Your teaching pierced my heart. I've been crying through most of it. And I just thank you so much. I'm going to, I've never knew, I didn't know Basubandu, but I've been approaching what you're trying to talk about personally. And you sang a beautiful poem to me today. So I just want to thank you with deep bows. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah. Thank for bringing your heart. Thank you for bringing your heart. Jan's hand is up. Um, thank you very much for the talk today. It's, um, I, well, uh, what I want to say, I'm sorry to draw attention to myself this way, but um, I am a, a fanatic and I always have been about one thing or another. And um and what I like about Buddhism is um, it doesn't elicit my fanaticism. Uh, and um, uh, But I do like it, and I do recommend it to people or say, you know, well, you really should go to this video where, the, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I don't expect a lot of, um, you know, but, but you know, my, my present fanaticism, is surrounding nuclear power and nuclear changes uh, that are uh, happening in the world. I don't and, want to say anymore. I'm just speaking out. Thank you so much. It really was helpful to uh, hear the teachings. We, we, oh, was that, uh, sorry, there was like an audio thing, but you just, uh, did you just wrap up, Jen? Let's see. Did someone mute? Did she just get muted accidentally? Jan, I I think you're muted now. I was sorry about that, Jan. Oh, okay. Deborah was talking and she wasn't unmuted. And so it kind of took over. But uh, what I, what I wanted to say is that um, uh, what's happening with the uh, power of the splitting of the atom and has been for the last 70 years is um, is changing the future and it is distracting from uh, it is creating part of the problem we're having with the uh, climate and it's very difficult for me to not focus on the changes that are being made to the future and trying to stop those changes which I consider to be quite damaging and I'm wondering, uh, you, you know, I see the future a certain way, and it doesn't look good. And um, and so I, I think what you're saying is the future is not an object. I'm not going to be able to control it. And yet I don't want to give up what I'm trying to do to change the future or to improve the future. And it feels like a contradiction. And it is. So, and so yeah. I'm finished. <laughs> okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah. It is a paradox. Contradiction, paradox, for sure. Yeah. 
Uh, and this is, you know, norm, this, for Mahayana Buddhist practice, this may be one of the reasons it doesn't evoke as much fanaticism is because we we actively bring paradox into our lives because that's actually how the life, how the world is, I think, but also just as medicine for our fixations. But yeah, the idea is to, you know, it's like, I don't, uh, I don't know what the future will bring. And um, I can assume that there'll be huge amounts of suffering uh, throughout my life until after I die. I live in samsara. And so then I can just be like, well, that's all true. That's tough to take in. But there's there's things that I think it would be helpful for me to do. And I'm going to do them. And I'm going to do them with my whole being. And I'm going to try and do them in a way that's kind and effective. Um, so for you, you know, if you have this calling to um, work on um, impeding the expansion of nuclear energy, yeah, how can you find a way to do that in a way that feels true to you and, and healthy in the relationships you work with for people. Uh, I, I encourage you to just keep walking that path uh, and, and take care of yourselves and, and the people who you're with and the world all, all at once is possible. So thank you. Thank you. And I think I will uh, turn it back over to uh, Tygen or whoever. Okay. Uh, ben, thank you. Really wonderful, a wonderful talk. And yeah, I, I just want to say that uh, Vasubandhu and Yogacara is, is, to me, is very much part of Zen as I know it. Um, my teacher, Tenshin Ramanishan, talks about Yogacara and Avatamsaka all the time, um, and I and I try to as well. Uh, it's not always obvious, so I re- appreciate your digging into. Vasubandhu's text and really bringing forth this stuff for us. So thank you so much. Um, and uh, so uh, I think, uh, David, now is time for, uh, uh, shall we do the Bodhisattva vows and then we can do announcements and then. Yes, yes, then- let's do that. And uh, for those of us in the room, the, the revised text of the Bodhisattva vows is available in your chant book on page 36. Things are numberless, we vow to freedom. Delusions are inexhaustible, we vow to cut through them. Dharma gates are boundless. We vow to enter them, but God's ways unsurpassable. We vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. We vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. We vow to cut through them. Dharma gates are boundless. We vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. We vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. We vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. We vow to cut through them. The Dharma gates are boundless. We vow to enter them. 
Unsurpassable, we vow to realize it.